Psalm 29 is the text for this morning's sermon. And that's on page 461 in your pew Bible. Psalm 29, this is the word of God. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And after the sermon, we'll respond by singing this psalm. Psalm 29, all the stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where does religion come from? Now, if you ask the scholars, those who do not believe, the unbelieving scholars, they'll say, well, religion evolved, just like man did. You see, as, as man evolved and started to become aware more and more of what was going on around him, he he saw the forces of nature, the storms, and, and the dangers in nature, and, and he was afraid. He was afraid of those powerful forces. And so he invented religion as a way to try to, to manipulate and to manage and to deal with and to appease the forces of nature by making them into gods. Well, in a way, that's true. People do create gods to appease and to protect them from danger and to try to manipulate and, and, and kind of give some kind of direction to their lives by controlling those powers around them. In the ancient Near East, in the, in the area around Israel, many people believed that there were all kinds of gods and that two of them in particular were always fighting. There was a perpetual conflict between Yam, that's Y-A-M, not Y-U-M, Yam or Yam, the, the god of the sea and of chaos. And then on the other side, there was Baal, who was the god of prosperity and fertility. And they would fight throughout the year, and that's why you got the seasons and Baal would hopefully win, and they would have a prosperous and fertile year. 
the ancients were very scared of the chaos and the disaster which the storm would bring. And so it's true that people create their own gods. It's very true. But the Bible teaches that this is not evolution. It's not a, a development. It's devolution. It's regression. It's going backwards. We read Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, we, we learn that, that people refuse to see the truth that is staring them in the faith in, face in creation. They refuse to acknowledge the power and majesty and glory of God. In fact, they repress the knowledge of the invisible attributes of God that he clearly reveals in his creation, and they go off and worship created things instead, the forces of nature, creatures instead of the creator. And what does that lead to? Well, the end of Romans chapter 1 tells us that leads to bad things. It leads to darkness, to ignorance, to foolishness, and to perversion of all good things. Now, in Psalm 29, we have the Holy Spirit revealing to us the truth that only God the Creator is sovereign and that only He should be worshipped. Now, unbelieving scholars, they look at Psalm 29 and they notice that a lot of things in this psalm kind of evoke or remind one of things that the ancients would attribute to Baal. For instance, Baal was called the, the god of thunder, the god of seven thunders. And so many unbelieving scholars say, well, what the, the Jews did here, they just kind of took a poem, a hymn written to Baal, and they just kind of adapted it and used it for themselves. Well, the thing is, the Hebrews didn't need help writing poetry. We've got a whole book of Psalms and other poetry in the Old Testament, which is very well made. They didn't need to borrow from the heathen, from the pagans. What's going on here is not borrowing. What's going on here is proclamation. If you look throughout the Psalm, and if you would count all the times that you see the word Lord in capital letters, behind that word Lord in capital letters, I think most of you know, is the Hebrew word Yahweh, and that's the, the name of our covenant God. And 18 times, 18 times in this psalm, which in the Hebrew has only 89 words, 18 times we read the name of our God, our King, our Creator, Yahweh. So the psalm's saying, listen, it's not Baal, it's Yahweh. Over and over the psalm calls attention to the sovereignty, the glory, the power, the majesty of Yahweh. So that's how it begins. It's glorying in the power of God and his total sovereignty over the heaven and over the earth and over all creatures. And the psalm begins by, by saying to all the heavenly beings that they must ascribe to the Lord and to the Lord alone all glory and all strength. Heavenly beings, literally in Hebrew, says sons of Elohim, sons of God. And the phrase sons of God in the scriptures can refer to great, mighty, exalted kings, 
It can refer to spiritual forces. It can refer to any kind of powerful and exalted force, whether in the spiritual realm or in the, create, in the, the visible realm. So it would include those forces of creation that the pagans considered gods. The psalmist is saying, listen, anything, anyone which is mighty and which is exalted must ascribe to the Lord alone glory and strength and must recognize, look at verse 2, must recognize that all glory is connected only to his name must worship the Lord. And the word here just means fall down your face, prostrate yourself, and acknowledge his glory. So the psalmist is calling all spiritual powers and all human powers to fall down and worship the only power, which is power indeed, the power of God. And he says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, some of you may have a footnote in your Bible, and it might say at the bottom of your page or the, the margin, it might say, in holy attire. The Hebrew is very, very similar, and there's a good possibility that it says in holy attire, but the, the idea is similar either way. What is, the, what is the psalmist saying? He's saying, come worship God not dressed in the royal garments of your own power and your own glory, but dressed to worship, dressed to fall down, dressed to acknowledge that he alone deserves all praise and worship and glory. This reminds us of Psalm 110. If you flip in your Bible, Psalm 110 Verse 3, we see a similar phraseology or phrasing. 110 verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, dressed to worship. That's the same Hebrew that's back of verse 2 here in our text. So what is this, what is this saying? What does it say to us? Well, God calls us into his presence every week it's the event of the week for a Christian. We begin our week in the very presence of God by the new and living way that the Lord Jesus opened up for us behind the curtain. We go in corporate worship. We go and ascend into the very heavenlies themselves. And we appear before the throne of the universe. Now, how should we appear? Should we come dressed in an attitude and in clothing that reflects that attitude an attitude that says me. It's all about me. It's about my look. It's about projecting that I'm cool or rich or powerful or interesting or good-looking or whatever it is. Or do we come dressed with an attitude and with clothing, clothing that reflects that, an attitude of humble worship? That's what the Scripture calls us to, an attitude of humble worship. And that shows in every aspect of our appearance. And then we get the next part of the psalm, seven times a mention of the voice of the Lord. Now, the voice 
of the Lord can also be translated the, the sound of the Lord, voice or sound. Baal was called the God of seven thunders. And the Hebrew poet's having some fun with this. He's saying, that's not who's important. That's not who's powerful. That's not who's sovereign. God, the voice of the Lord, the sound of the Lord, seven times. He's the real God of thunder. All power in creation is in his hands. The God of glory thunders. And then we get a description in the rest of the psalm of a storm. That's what's happening in this psalm. There's a storm which begins out at sea over the Mediterranean. It makes landfall. It goes over the, the hills and the mountains in the middle of the country. And finally, it peters out in the desert, the way storms would happen. So David is observing the power of God in the storm. Now, David, he knew how to see the glory and power of God in creation. Remember Psalm 8? Children, you remember Psalm 8 where David goes outside at night and he, he looks up at the sky and he just feels so small and so insignificant. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? David, David is an outdoor kind of guy. He spent a lot of time outside and he loves to see God his majesty and glory displayed in the creation. We have a problem in the 21st century because we don't spend enough time outside. A lot of us, especially the younger ones amongst us, we stay often in our artificial and our controlled environments, our little virtual worlds. And in the virtual world, guess who's powerful? Guess who has the power and the glory and the kingdom and the might? It's, it's us. We can make anything happen in that fake world of pixels and computer programming. You know... We need more Psalm 8 moments in our lives. We need to get out there and stop looking at the things, the, the artificial and contrived world and environment that man makes. We need to get out there into the creation, and we need to see the glory. And if our children are not seeing it and not experiencing it, that is going to have very, very negative consequences for their spiritual development. So in Psalm 29, we see the power of God in the storm. If you think about it, a storm, the Lord can stop an entire city with a little bit of snow. A little storm and human activity has to kind of slow down and come to a grinding halt. At sea, if you're in a boat, even a big boat, and the storm makes the waves 10 stories high, then you feel so small and so helpless, and so insignificant. And then if you get a really big storm, like a tornado, and you think of the energy in one tornado, you know, in one tornado, there can be as much energy as 10,000 nuclear bombs. Think about that. 10,000 nuclear bombs of the size that they dropped on Hiroshima in one tornado. That's a lot of power. 
So there's a storm in the Mediterranean Sea. And the roiling sea, the chaotic sea, is a symbol of the Scriptures. It is a symbol of the, the powers that threaten human life, not just the powers in nature, but also economics and, and poli politics and, and wars. Turn for a moment in your Bible to Psalm 65, verse 7. Just flip a few pages further, Psalm 65, 7. And you speak about uh, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. And throughout the scriptures, the chaos and the roiling sea often is used as a description of the chaos and tumult of the nations, the roiling of the nations. So here is God. And verse 3 says that he is above all that. He thunders the Lord over many waters. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying, look, it's not that God of the sea, Yam, or Yam, nor is it Baal, but it is God, Yahweh, the covenant God. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one that is over all of this. Now, in Canada, it's a little different because it's hard to enter a house through the roof. But where I worked in Brazil for many years, the roofs are made in such a way that thieves and bad people often climb onto the roof, remove the roof tiles, and come in through the ceiling. It's, a, it's one way to get into the house, a fairly easy way. And I once visited a family that had spent the entire night in fear because the local gangsters who were... Uh, striking fear into the heart of everybody in that neighborhood, they had spent a number of hours on the roof that night threatening to come into the house. And what that would mean there in that particular neighborhood would be uh, suffering, it would be robbery and rape, and perhaps even death. So this family was in terror the entire night. And as I spoke to them about this, I called them to consider who is in charge. And I said to them, listen, if you hear a noise on the roof and you're afraid, but then somebody tells you, don't worry, it's dad. Dad is up there. He's fixing something. Dad is doing something on the roof. That noise suddenly that struck fear into your heart now doesn't phase you at all. And that's a little bit of what the psalmist is trying to tell us here. We hear the thunder and the lightning and that power, verse 4, that majesty strikes fear. You know, if, if lightning strikes very close even to the, the bravest man in this congregation and the thunder claps very close, even the bravest guy in the depth of his heart will confess that that's a little bit shocking. It's a little bit frightening. The power of God in creation is frightening. But we know who it is. We know who is making that noise up there. It is God, our Father. And so we don't fear, we worship. And we go into verse 5. The storm has now come past the coast. It enters into the forest of Lebanon. 
and it just breaks those cedars like matchsticks. Now, the, the cedars of Lebanon were glorious and majestic trees. They were symbols of power and majesty and solidity and stability that were used in temples and royal palaces, and God's power just snaps them like matchsticks. Then in verse 6 and verse 7, it continues through the forest and over the mountains, and it just makes Lebanon skip, and it shakes up Syrian. It makes Syrian jump like a young wild ox. Now, Maybe you don't recognize Sirion, but if I told you that Sirion is another name for Mount Hermon, that might tell you something. Mount Hermon was that mountain way up in the north of Israel, in the south of Lebanon, so high that it often had snow on the top and brought refreshing breezes down onto Jerusalem. Now, why does the psalmist mention specifically this mountain? Well, in the Baal myths, Mount Sirion is where Baal hangs out. That's where he has his temple. That's where he lives. And the psalmist is saying, look, that powerful God, the the God of seven thunders, that fake idol called Baal, God is taking the mount of his residence and just shaking it around like a toy. God is mocking the fake news of the power of Baal. Now, the the Hebrew here is really neat because the psalmist uses the sounds of the words to evoke the sound of the lightning. So, we have a lot of sounds. If you're reading through the Hebrew, you hear the lightning as you read. When lightning hits the ground, the ground trembles. In one bolt of lightning, you have the the energy of billions of light bulbs. And then in verse 8, We're in the wilderness. The storm has gone to the other side of the mountains, and the wilderness also trembles. So we get to verse 9, and we consider the reaction to all of this. What's the reaction to God's display of majesty and power? Well, the creation trembles, the ground shakes, and the trees fall down onto the ground in worship. Even the animals react. Now, the, the Hebrew of the first part of chapter verse 9 is a little bit complicated because Hebrew doesn't have vowels. It just has the consonants. So, sometimes there are two options for, how to, for, for what the words can mean. If you have an NIV, it might say, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks or something like that. And then in the ESV, we have the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And those are both possibilities based on the Hebrew letters that we have. What's the point? The point is is that creation rise and trembles and reacts to the manifestation of the power of God. But what's missing? Whose reaction is missing? There's no human reaction, is there? As far as humans go, there's just silence in all the world. Human beings are mute with terror. Like Adam and Eve, when they heard the voice of the Lord in the garden, what did they do? They ran and they hid. That's the reaction of sinful man. But there's one exception. What's the exception? Look at the end of verse 9. In his temple. That's where we get a reaction from human beings. In his temple, just there, all cry 
glory. Now, why would that be? Why just in the temple? Well, in the temple, we don't just have the book of creation speaking, but in the temple, we have that second book, the book of special revelation. We have the word of God. What does Malachi say, 2 2 verse 7? For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. In the temple, we have special revelation. In the temple, God speaks, and God teaches his people. In the temple, we learn not just about the raw power of God in creation, which leaves the sinner in terror with no excuse. But in the temple, we have the voice of God, which speaks life and grace, and which teaches us what observing the creation cannot teach us. And so we move on to verse 10. It is the word which teaches us that Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood as king forever. Now, that's important. The people around Israel back in those days, they said, well, it's a perpetual tug of war between competing gods and forces. There's this cycle that happens. At first, Yama has the upper hand, and then Baal has the upper hand, and we're just kind of underneath there hoping that the good guy will win. The psalmist says, no, not so. It's not a cycle. God is enthroned, and he's enthroned permanently. And the one who's on the throne, the one who is sovereign over all the created universe is Yahweh, the one who has covenanted with us. He's in charge. Now look at verse 10 for a moment. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Hebrew uses a bunch of different words for flood. There's your regular everyday flood. Well, hopefully not everyday, but, you know, the common ones. And then there's the once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-the-history-of-a-world of a flood. And that's the word that's used here. The biggest flood you can imagine. This word flood in verse 10 is the, the word that the Holy Spirit uses throughout the Scriptures to describe Noah's flood, the worst imaginable destruction that has ever happened in the history of the world. It will never happen again. The psalmist is saying, pick the worst thing you can imagine. God is still sovereign over that. We move to verse 11. God shows strength to the wicked, but he gives strength to his people. And he blesses them with peace. You know, the people around Israel, they, they had this idea that, that Baal would fight with Yom, and then he would, he would ask other gods to fill the land with peace and love. There was this whole pantheon, this whole group of gods, and they would sometimes fight and bicker and sometimes cooperate, and the humans just had to hope that things would work out. But the psalmist says, no, that's not how the real world works. Our lives are not subject to a bunch of flawed gods that are arguing and fighting over all the chaos of this human existence. Our covenant God, Yahweh, is in total control. The Lord is sovereign, and this is consolation, and this is comfort, and this is peace for his people. We know who's up there. It's our Father 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, and so we can be at peace. Now, Israel had to learn that lesson the hard way. They spent centuries running after the idols and the Baals until finally God sent them into exile. And they learned the lesson. When they came back from exile, they hated idolatry. They hated the high places, and they focused on the temple, the house of God. That's where the answers are. Yahweh, he's the one. Psalm 23 was written by David, but it's in a group of psalms. Psalm, sorry, Psalm 29 is written by David, but it's in a group of psalms, Psalm 23 to Psalm 29, which have been grouped after the exile and it's a group of psalms which focus on the house of the Lord. The exiles, as they organized the Psalter the way we have it today, they were saying in this group of psalms, it's all about him. Where do you seek comfort and peace in a chaotic world? Where do you run to deal with life's problems and fears and pains. You know, we don't have little statues. Most of us don't have little statues in our houses that we fall down before and worship. I hope no one does. But we have our idols. We have the things that we cling to for hope and for comfort. We, we sacrifice our kids on the altar of success. We sacrifice our marriages to run after mammon and serve him. We look to comfort food as our little idol that will be there for us. We get hooked on the dopamine shots from social media when we see the little red numbers climbing and the likes on our Instagram and Facebook. We look to the pseudo piece of drugs and alcohol and the pseudo pleasure of obsession with sex and pornography. Lots of idols out there for us to run to, to seek comfort with. Well, they only ensnare us and enslave us and draw us away from the real thing. And what the Scripture teaches in this psalm and throughout the Scriptures is this. It is all or it is nothing. You can't go on limping between two opinions. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You need to find peace, all of it, and comfort, all of it, in the presence of God. That's the message of the gospel. We need to seek our welfare and salvation in God alone. In God as he is near to us. In God with us. Emmanuel. Now we know him even better than the psalmist did. Because we know God, Yahweh, in Christ. That's who the psalmist is pointing to to our covenant God as he reveals himself in Christ. And we just went through Christmas, so see if we can see this. Children, what does this remind you of? If we look at the end of verse 9. And his temple all cry glory. They're crying glory to, to God in the highest, right? That's verse 9. And then look at verse 11. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. What does that remind you of? We just came through Christmas. We know what that reminds us of. Glory to God in the highest on earth peace. It reminds us of God who reveals his power and creation 
that reveals his grace and glory in his word and most fully in the word made flesh in our Lord Jesus Christ. For in him, says the scripture, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now back in the time of the psalmist, where did you look for God? Where did you have to find God? You had to go to Jerusalem, had to go to the temple. That's where he was. That's where his presence was. Hidden behind the veil, but you could get close. What about now? Where do we find God? We don't have to fly to Jerusalem. Temple's not there anymore because the fullness of God dwells bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be close to God. We want to be in the presence of God. We need to find Jesus. We need to find Christ. Now, where do we find him? Well, the children know that Christ is in heaven, right? Well, how do we get there? We can't get there yet. But where do we find Christ here on earth? Well, we know what the scripture says, that Christ, his head is in heaven, but Christ, his body, is here on earth. And his body here on earth is the church. And the church, as the scripture, is the temple of the Holy Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to find God? You want to come into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit? You gather with that temple made from living stones, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, where the Word and the Spirit are. So we live in a world of chaos and fear and natural catastrophe and extreme climate and earthquakes and tsunamis and human catastrophes and massacres and terror and violence and disease and death of loved ones and wars and rumors of wars and depravity and mental illness and physical illness and unemployment and broken relationships and dangerously terrifying and powerful and destructive economic and social forces. And in that world of chaos and turbulence, it is in the temple of God the church, where we find the message of peace and stability and shelter from the storm. And it is here that we get perspective on the chaos because here we come into the presence of God Almighty. And here he teaches us the truth that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Here, we are secure in the grace of God in Christ. Here we can give glory when we see his power sovereign over the world and sovereign over history and throned above the chaos and the flood because we know something that people out there do not know and don't want to know. We know who is directing the forces of nature, who is directing social and political and economic forces, it's our Lord Jesus Christ, the right hand of God, breaking the seals of the scroll, executing the eternal plan of God. He is on the throne. He's in charge. He's in control. He's got this. And we know where it's all headed. It's headed to a new world, new heavens, and a new earth where there is no more sea, no more chaos, no more catastrophes, no more turmoil of rebellion, of sin of the nations. Yahweh is coming for his bride. 
He made a covenant with her. He will never, ever leave or abandon or forsake her. Well, let's finish by looking at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4 for a moment. In Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. On this last Sunday of 2019, we know what we're waiting for. We know what's coming, the day when we will hear the voice of command and the trumpet of the archangel and God will rip the sky open and the Lord Jesus will descend on the clouds and he will make all things new and the whole creation will be the temple. And in that temple, we will declare and sing forever, glory, glory, glory to God in the highest Glory to the God of the covenant. Glory to God who relates to us in Christ. Glory to God who by the power of the Spirit destroyed everything that has to do with sin and made all things new in Christ. In this church, we proclaim the future glory. In this chaotic world, it is in the church that we are tasting the first fruits of the glory that dwells in us and amongst us. And amidst the terrors which surround and attack us, we know the glory which comforts and consoles us and gives us peace, the peace that passes understanding. We cry glory in the temple. We cry glory in our worship. And we cry glory in all of our life. Amen.